2: Welcome to Coming Clean, the podcast dedicated to common sense environmental dialogue, environmental optimism, and real environmental solutions. This show is proudly powered by Orsted. Welcome back to the Coming Clean podcast. My name is Steven Perkins, your host, and today we have an episode that I have been looking forward to for quite some time. Today, we're joined by Will Harris of White Oak Pastures. He is a fourth-generation cattleman who is tending the same land that his great-grandfather settled in 1866. His operation is based out of Georgia and has been a leader in regenerative agriculture, and he is a highly sought-after teacher for other farmers and ranchers around the country. Will, thank you so much for coming on the show. As I understand it, you have a new book coming out. Tell us a little bit about that.
0: It's called A Bold Return to Giving a Damn. It's uh, the first and it'll be the last book I do. It took me nearly 70 years to get enough information to put it right the first book. I don't think I'll get the second.
2: like you've asked about it. We're very proud of it. And tell me about the the process of writing that. Um, what, what was it like to, to get your story and, and sort of your philosophy, if that's fair to say, on paper?
0: Well, I had a lot of help. Uh, you know, my my degree is in uh, animal science, College of Agriculture, University of Georgia, and it's about 50, 40 years old, 50 years old. So I wasn't exactly prime time for writing a book. Uh, we were actually approached by agents for, from uh, Penguin Random House, and they uh, approached us, and, and, I, and I told them that I didn't think we could do that. I didn't think I had uh, the ability to write a book, and they uh, provided a brilliant young woman to write the book for me. She Amy uh, uh, Lee Craven is her name, and she did a fantastic job. Came very close. She spent a lot of time here on the farm. She's from California. She spent a lot of time here on the farm. And then we had a, every Friday afternoon appointment, uh, two to four hours for her to ask me questions. And she wrote everything that was out
2: of me. And I I, I think she did a great job writing. I, I bet it's it's a pretty tedious process, but... Um, in some ways probably a, a really interesting one for you to to just say the things that you hadn't quite you know put out on the record yet.
0: Yeah, that's exa- that's exactly right. I, I uh, you know you know a lot of things that you have not exactly put to words, and it it forced me to do that, and I, I'm
2: very glad
0: glad to have it.
2: So. The reason we wanted to have you on, uh, I, I discovered you the first time that you were on Joe Rogan's podcast, and he always puts on an interesting show, but that one, I, I remember so vividly driving and listening to you and you know, having recently, in recent years, become more interested in food and agriculture and obviously working for a climate environment organization. Um, there's such an interesting intersection uh, when you talk about regenerative agriculture and farming. So before we get too deep into it, could you first give us an overview what that is and, and what you mean when you say that you practice regenerative practices?
0: Uh, regenerative land management to me means uh, working uh, to support the cycles of nature. The, I practiced linear industrial agriculture, monocultural agriculture for 20 years before I move back to this model i say back because it's the model of my my grandfather great-grandfather and, uh, and and spent all my time and money breaking the cycles of nature looking for ways to break the cycles of nature and now i spent all my time looking for ways to support and reinforce the cycles of nature cycles of nature being to name a few the water cycle, the mineral cycle, the microbial cycle, the energy cycle, uh, the grazing cycle, all no!
2: So your family has been on that land for over a hundred years, and you grew up with this industrial style of, of, of farming and doing things. Um, tell me about the journey that you then went on to change that and what that was like for you, what your family thought of that. Just tell us the story of that transition.
0: So my great-grandfather came to this farm in 1866, just after the Civil War. He farmed all his life, followed by his son, my grandfather, followed by his son, my father, and me. Now I have two daughters and in-laws taking over the farm from me, and they've got five babies. So I've got a long line here on the farm. You know, most of what we know about the way my great-grandfather and grandfather worked this land is anecdotal, but it would have been very focused on doing the right things, the land, the animals, and the community, because that's how, that's how the games played prior to World War II. Post-World War II, there was a lot of changes. And that's when agriculture commoditized, industrialized, became very linear as opposed to cyclical. My dad uh, embraced that. It became a monoculture of only cattle instead of a polyculture of a lot of different crops. You know. And he ran this farm financially successful, successfully for his career. Uh, I, as I said earlier, I went to the University of Georgia, major in science, graduated in 1976, came home and further industrialized the farm As a monoculture of only cattle, a lot of chemical fertilizer, a lot of pesticides, a lot of ionophores, a lot of subtherapeutic antibiotics, on and on. Mm. Um, I ran the farm successfully, financially successfully, for 20 years. In the mid 90s, I was uh, less and less uh, engaged, less and less uh, enamored with that. Form of agriculture. So I started changing things, and ultimately it, it came to resemble what my great grandfather and grandfather did much more than it resembled what my dad and I did for so long.
2: So it was a slow transition, uh, it sounds like, but was there a moment you talk about becoming less engaged and in, in how you were doing things? Was there a moment where you realized this isn't going to work long-term. This isn't good for the land. Like, tell us about that tipping point, if there was one.
0: There, there, there was one. I had become, you know, as I said, increasingly dissatisfied with the system. And one morning, we loaded out a load of, of calves I'd raised. So you can put 100 by 100-pound calves on a double-decker truck. And I've loaded those trucks many, many, many times, and I loaded that load. And I, it just felt very wrong to me. The ones on top urinating and defecating on the ones on the bottom. They've been on that truck for 30 hours without food or water or rest. And, you know, it just I just suddenly didn't like it. I never had really focused on it much, but I, I did that day. And I started immediately moving away from that model. And it was more difficult than I thought. And it's honest to goodness, that was 25 years ago. And we're still in the process of moving away from it. We have, I, we have not fully, uh, the, we just keep figuring out things we ought to do that would be better. And I, I think that journey will continue probably uh, indefinitely.
2: So I know you work with a lot of other um operators who are trying to do a similar transition, and, and you help them with that. Um, kind of a two-part question. The first part is, I'm assuming that when you went to college, you were not taught about the farming that you do today. You were probably taught about industrial farming. Is, is that fair? And, and also, has education changed at all in that regard in recent years? That is, I,
0: I was absolutely taught the industrial model. And we could talk about that a long time. And, and, and I embraced it. I, I, I loved it at the time. You know, the, the problem with that, that whole uh, amount of, of education is I learned uh, microbiology from microbiologists who knew all that we knew about microbiology at that time, but knew very little about it nutrition, uh, pasture management, or any of the other myriad of uh, components that, that are involved in making a good grazing system. You know, or genetics from geneticists who knew, you know, they'll they they say, you know, more and more about less and less, to, you know, all there is to know about almost nothing is the way that educational system works. And they're good people in it. I'm not being critical of the people, but it's so silent. And that's not what happens here on this farm. Here on this farm, all those cycles are operating uh, in conjunction with each other and and directly influenced by each other. And it's not silent.
2: So and then the other part of that is is as you teach it to people, as you talk to people about um, this new way of, maybe not new way of doing things, but you know, the, the, this sort of return to the old way of doing things, I guess. Um, I imagine you're met with a lot of resistance of, look, we've got a, a lot of money tied up in an operation. This is already uh, an industry that, um, that it's a lucky year if we see any sort of profit. And, and now you know, you're saying that it's best for us to do these things that are going to cost more money and and make us have to learn, you know, new tricks and all these things. What is your response to people when you're coaching them on this um, between the emotion and also just the business side of of making a transition?
0: You are right. Uh, The transitioning is very, very difficult. And most of that difficulty comes from the fact that there are huge, powerful entities making a lot of money in the existing system that I have no place in my system. You know, the, uh, the technology uh, in, in agriculture has moved further and further and further, costing more and more money, You're raising yields higher and higher and higher and what's so often lost in that. So there's, so there's a lot of resistance towards changing things in, in the, the way we have. Uh, the, uh, uh, the The difficulty is that the voices of these companies are, are so loud. And they have so much control over... Uh, sadly, the government, land-grant uh, universities are just very, very influential, and and they they they're a lot, a lot louder than we are, and they have something to gain by keeping these uh, systems in place. You know, but the way it works, quite simply, is the big multinational companies develop technologies that uh, kill one perceived pest you know all these things are called sides pesticide insecticide fungicide side is kill so they develop technologies that kill one perceived pest and it's highly efficacious it works well it does it but it leaves the field open for other pests because it doesn't just kill that one thing; it kills other things, and all of these life systems are interrelated out there in the fields, in the pastures, in the woods. So they—it's—it's uh, it's, it's a brilliant system. I don't think anybody did it by design, but they sell you a cure that causes a problem that needs another cure that they can sell you that causes another problem. So it's just—it's incredible amounts of money capital involved in this and it has pushed yields up 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 to an incredibly high level which sounds very good but it came with a lot of unintended cost unintended consequences the the actual cost of raising these crops with these incredible yields is cast off to other areas, you know, the, the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, you know, the 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 the, the companies, the pesticide companies in the farm that that develop those chemistries that cause that dead zone, weighted to it, and the farms that spray them won't cover the cost of that. We all, we can talk about forest fires, we can talk about droughts, we can talk about, especially talk about endangered species or extinct species so many huge costs have fall upon us that the perpetrators that develop the technologies will not pay.
2: A, a story as old as time in many ways. Um, so I, I want to I play critic a little bit and, and see your responses here. So we, we talked about um, what an operator may be thinking about it in terms of the business sense it makes. But a lot of people would say, look, this industrial style of farming, especially after World War II when the world experienced a huge population boom and that's not, uh, you know, the world is growing rapidly, continues to, this is how we feed people. This is how we keep food from a price standpoint accessible. This is how we make sure uh, that, that nations can grow, that families can be supported, all of that. Um, and. And, and your way would increase our cost. It would lower our yield. What's your response to that?
0: That the earth has a carrying capacity. And I don't know what that number is. But we cannot continue to exponentially increase the number of people on this planet without consequences. And I don't know what that number is. Uh, and I... I don't think that uh, in the current system, people will starve to death. I think that we'll keep producing some form of food uh, for, for, you know, in, in perpetuity, maybe. But other things will happen. You know, the there are unintended consequences to this incredible food production system that we've developed. And those consequences have to be dealt with, too. You know, what happened I don't want I don't to get in a long debate about global warming. I, I don't think I would uh, do very well with that, but I do think that uh, things like pollution in the sea, uh, things like endangered species, things like microplastic showing up everywhere, things like pesticides showing up in the uh, 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 extreme. Uh, uh, north and South Poles, where they had new years, they just shortened up a All in all, you know, we are doing harm, we are doing damage, and it will come
2: home to bear at some point if we keep going in this direction. Completely agree. One of the things that, that we talk about at ACC, one, well, one of the things that we say often is um, whether it's sportsmen, whether it's farmers and ranchers, the people who are interacting with the land the most are often the biggest conservationists. They may just not say it necessarily. And so um, would love to get your reaction to that. And if you consider yourself a conservationist, but also talk about some of the um, sustainable, you know, what people would think of as environmentally practices that you have at White Oak Pastures.
0: So I do think I'm a cons- conservationist. I think most most of us followers do believe we're conservationists, so some of us are right, some of us are wrong. I hope I'm right. I think I am. I have seen uh, the number of species of of, of uh, plants and animals, and probably microbes hadn't seen the microbes obviously, but the number of uh, things like things like toads, things like fireflies. Uh, things like lizards, you know, just, just the number of species that are indigenous here. Some of them probably not indigenous, but they, that are, have gone up and up and up as I have ceased to use tillage and chemical fertilizers and uh, pesticides. So, I, I mean, I, I, I know, I mean, I've seen it. I've been doing it for 25 years, and I've seen it. It's not, it's not anecdotal. It's not theoretical. I've, I've seen it. You know, if, you, if, you want to, if you want proof, there is a scientific study called an LCA Life Cycle Assessment on, on our website. website is whiteoakpastures.com. And it shows that in the last 20 years, the organic matter in our soil has increased from one-half of 1% to 5%. 10x increase. Now, let me tell you what that means. Uh, organic matter in soil is, is the life in the soil. The rest of it is mineral, dead mineral. Uh, the organic matter is what absorbs moisture, the, rain, the rainfall. A one-inch rain is 27,000 gallons of water. And if you've got 1% organic model, it'll absorb it. So we can absorb on white oak pastures a five-inch rainfall. White oak pastures used to, and my neighbors currently, have about a half percent matter. They can absorb a half-inch rain. We get 52 inches of rain on white oak pastures every year. And a lot of it comes in huge, a five, five-inch rain is not super uncommon. So we can absorb it and you can see it. There are videos on our website as well of the uh, excess water from rainfall coming off our farm versus a neighbor's farm, and it's just, it's incredibly different. A lot less water. The water that's coming off is a lot more pure. That doesn't carry the, the minerals and the microbes. With-
2: and that's a big thing about um, about farms, right? It, it, you're not just affecting your land. There is a, a literal downstream effect. And so you could make the case that when you move away from these industrial models, you, you're not just improving your own soil and your own land's health. You're improving the, the land that is downstream, the communities that are there, as you mentioned, if it gets out into the ocean or other waterways, you're, you're helping clean that up. Um, and I, I think I think that's important for people to think about is, is the much bigger picture of this ecosystem we live in.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for that. How did I make myself clear? I mentioned the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. What I fail to say is that all of the water, excess water that washes off white oak pastures, winds up in the Gulf of Mexico. So we contribute to that toxicity or we contribute to cleaning it up depending on how, what we do on white oak pastures.
2: It, and you also use a lot of uh, zero-waste practices, and maybe some of the ones you mentioned kind of fall into that category, but are, are there any specifically zero-waste practices, things that you're trying to maximize your resources that you could tell us about?
0: Uh, there are a number of them. They're the most, uh, probably the most interesting, at least to me, would be the fact that we slaughter, uh cows, hogs, sheep, goats, rabbits, poultry here on the farm. We have two USDA-inspected slaughter plants, one for red meat, one for poultry. And between those two plants, they generate about nine tons a day of what's called packing plant waste. That's the uh, solid part of the animals that can't that doesn't have, can't be used for human food or pet food or chew toys or leather or what uh we compost that 9 tons a day here on the farm using peanut shells or wood chips and then we spread it back out on the land and it is incredible organic fertilizer wonderful just so like just like, like magic so uh, that that would be you know the water, wastewater from the plants. This is uh, goes through a treatment system on the farm. And sprayed back out as irrigation water. On the past. We and we're we're imperfect, but we really try to cycle things as opposed to dumping.
2: And 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 that's what I talk a lot with people about when they when they want to be more sustainable. So you can't do everything; you'll drive yourself crazy. You should find the things that you can do, the little things that add up over time that fit into your life. And what I've noticed is, um, and I like what you're talking about because it it is truly, it it wasn't what our ancestors did because they felt all the goodness of their heart that they want to be zero waste. It's what they did because they didn't have uh, a tractor supply company to go to and and buy these things. They didn't have a Walmart to go to and, you know, they, they had to use what they had because it was going to be a while until if they wanted to get a restock, if that product was even available back then, that they were going to be able to do that. What I found, um, and, and I, I, think, I think you've seen this with as much media as, as you've started to do in recent years, there's this renewed interest from people in where our food comes from, how we can return to practices um, of, of, of yesterday. Uh, that are more sustainable, Um, and just in general, people becoming, especially I think during the pandemic, becoming more educated about the things that they're bringing into their home, into their bodies, where they come from, how they're sourced. Are you seeing that, and and does that help the the case that you're trying to make uh, with White Oak Pastures?
0: Uh, Actually, it's not quite as good as as the way that, that you proposed it. I mean, I wish it was that way. And then there is more awareness, but there's also a much greater effort on the part of big multinational food companies to greenwash their product and change the messaging to the consumers of buying uh, the same industrial food or, or nearly the same industrial food with a very clear conscience that they're doing the right thing by the Land, the animal, the rural community, the environment, etc. That that greenwashing uh, by large multinational companies is really thwarting the efforts of people like us. We're we're very fortunate at White Oak Pastures. I started my effort 25 years ago, and we've got uh, a certain amount of market share that we have managed to keep and it, it it allows us to continue to operate we don't we don't make a lot of money but it's fine it's fine we're doing, we can operate that's that's what matters uh, and there have been other companies that have or farms that have uh tried to do this but started later and the and the greening washing was too strong and they couldn't they couldn't support themselves or. Probably well, there are those that want to. So green- greenwashing by big industrial companies is is the the greatest limitless this movement has. You're right. There is increasing uh, increasing understanding on the part of the consumers to support this, but it's it's been um, it's been mishandled by by the companies.
2: So so maybe the better way to say it is there's increased Curiosity about these things, but when they seek information, they are seeing um, greenwashed information. They're seeing just false information uh, or, or misleading information. That that that's right. These these people are so good at it. I mean,
0: they are so, they they're able to spend so many millions and millions of dollars to message, you know, to what what they want to message. And you know, this is highly efficacious. People just get, and, and people are so busy. You know, they, they, they don't have time to learn all they used to know about how their celery or steak is. is uh,
2: That's the thing, right? It's, I'm going to run by the grocery store on my way home because I've got a fixed dinner, and I'm just going to pick up what's there. And I might spring for organic, but what does organic actually mean because standards aren't quite, uh, so strict on that. Don't don't forget, you can have
0: organic tomatoes that have never seen the sunlight or soil. Right.
2: right. Uh, my my, uh, my my teacher in high school would always rant about organic. He said organic just means that there's there's oxygen present. Um. But uh, so, I I think the question, and this may be a challenging question. Obviously, you invite people to your farm, to see for themselves, to, to, to learn. Not everyone can get to Bluffton, Georgia, um, uh, but how do you combat some of that misinformation that is out there? How do you educate people um, in a better way? I imagine you know, part of the reason why you do media, your, your book helps with that, but are there other strategies that you've found um, to, to help people with that?
0: However, well that's a that's a great question. <clears throat> and, we, and we work on it every day. The best thing that we can do is get people to the farm. You're right, Bluffton is hard to get to. You really got to want to get here. But we have built uh, lodging and a uh, store and a restaurant, and and none of which are particularly profitable, but support the messaging effort that we try to put. We we formed a a nonprofit of 501c3 to bring people here to teach them how to do it or show them how we do it. The uh, the uh, but but the the next best is to the social media. You know the fact that we've got my one of my daughters manages that department. And she puts everything out. We operate with full transparency. You can see anything you want to see. If you want to see the slaughterhouse, we'll show you the slaughterhouse. That's fine you want to see the pasture, whatever you want to see, we'll show it to you. And that sort of transparency is the shield and sword that we have against the greenwashing.
2: And I definitely encourage people to check out your social media because you're right, you, you do show some things that uh, a lot of, uh, maybe most operations would not, um, and that transparency is, I, I think, what people really crave. Now, whether they're able to you know, you could talk about accessibility and whether they're actually able to, to get this stuff or, you know, that thing. But um, the education is, is the first step. Um, I, I want to I, talk I, about...
0: Oh, yeah? I said say this. Well, we, 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 we're promoting food farming with this kind of the land and the animals in the local rural community produce good food for our consumer. It's not just about white oak pasture. That's the one I got to talk about. That's the one I can make promises. That's one I make guarantees on. But uh, we we currently ship product to 48 states, and that's not the way I intended for this tour. We I intended to be a local food. Now it didn't work out quite like that. First place we had to spend several million dollars putting in infrastructure to. Uh, vertically integrate the operation so I could nobody wanted to buy my chicken and, and hogs and cows. They wanted beef and pork and lamb. So I had to make that conversion. Hey, we had to just borrow a bunch of money and spend it to to, to get in a position to do that. But my hand, White Oak Basses is located in Clay County, Georgia, which was the poorest county in the United States of America in twenty twenty. So my local market is not the market but what i've done is uh, built a business that uh, is bigger than i care about it being don't want it to be so big shipping to 48 states and i'm glad I'm, I'm glad for the business i'm grateful for the business people give us but really what i wanted is it will be hundreds of white pastures all over the country feeding a much uh
1: That's shopify.com slash system.
2: And, and that's a good point, because to my earlier point of playing devil's advocate, you can't feed the world this way. Well, you can if, if we have a much more localized approach to agriculture. And, and there may be some places where that's harder. If you're in an area that isn't as, you know, um, as good for a farming operation, then yes, maybe that has that radius has to expand. But nonetheless, it's a more localized approach that could get us to a better place. I, I do want to talk about Bluffton a little bit because the story there is fascinating. There's obviously the, the, the side to your operation that is providing food and, and educating people, but it's also an economic driver in your county, in your city, and, and you have made it an effort to, to give back. And so tell us about, the econo- in an economic sense, the story of Bluffton and how White Oak Pastures has been a part of that.
0: White Oak Passes is the largest employer in Clay County, Georgia. We've got about 170 employees, and our payroll is about $100,000 a week. And and that's great, and I'm I'm delighted. That's the case, but that was never my goal. My goal was to to build this family-owned food, local food production system. And, but, and in doing it, we wound up to, having to hire more and more people, do more and more things, and that's just how it worked out. And the town of Bluffton is, was uh, formed in 1815, and uh, I think the, the the population has never been over about 400 people in the town, maybe 500, but it would have supported many th- several thousand people, probably fifteen twenty thousand people from the farmers around it, because at that time you know, every forty acres had a house with a farmer and maybe six, eight, ten children, and they and the trade center was Bluffton, so it had it was quite the little town. I can talk a lot about it, but I won't do that. I'll just tell you that it had gone into absolute economic decay. There's never been a railroad or a factory or a mill in Bluffton, purely agrarian economy. And when the r- local rural agrarian economy failed, it failed. And when I started changing things 20 years ago, 25 years ago, Bluffton uh, had uh, no business in it at all except a peanut mine point and a you know, temporary seasonal peanut mine point. open opened by six, eight weeks a year. And a post office, that was open by half a day. And nothing else. Not a single new housing start in Bluffton from 1972 until 2015. 2015, we my right. employees started building some houses. That's a long time. A lot of new housing starts. A, a lot of them was torn down during that period. But when we started you know, changing things that we do and hiring people, adding people, these are not, these are, we hire good people. We are great folks, and we pay them. I'm not proud of what we them, but it's better than a local act. I mean, the local app. Then the town started developing a little bit. And I can remember one day having a guest here, and he said, This is a nice little type. And it's I had to look to see, was he kidding? And he wasn't. And I looked and said, Yeah, it is. It is. I it'd been so so subtle, and it was not my goal, but when we put money back into this economy, the town revived. And it's a great place today. We are. I'm very proud of Bluff.
2: I I think there's a lot of opportunities across this country. Um, As I've traveled it, I I, I love, especially doing road trips and you stop through these towns and you think, what do people do do here? Like, you know, what's the economic driver? And a lot of these towns, it's fading, right? But if we had more local investment, if we had more um, whether it's a farm, whether it's you know, other businesses that are investing back in their community. Uh, maybe, maybe it is a, a really optimistic view, but I really do think that you can start to revive some of these smaller communities. Um, well, it's, not, it's,
0: not, it's not even a theory anymore. It used to be, hey, there was done here without a benefactor. You know, there, there was no, no big uh investor that came in and put a bunch of money in it you know this was done by us white oak pastures with bank debt and it's a it's a beautiful nice little place that people want to live here
2: well well, never did i think that it would be on my bucket list but it is on my bucket list now to go and and hope i can one day visit white oak pastures um i i want to wrap up today though um, with one kind of final discussion point and then a couple of rapid fires, if that's all right. Uh, and the final discussion point is, I, I, I think whether it's everything we talk about on the show, from clean energy to agriculture, um, the big question is about future workforce and developing that workforce. From my point of view, and tell me if I'm wrong on any of this, you, you have... Um, A younger generation, you know, older generations of farmers are finding it very tough to get their families to take over the farms. Younger people are not very keen on going into farming, especially their first time. It's a rough business. Um, Ag education is dwindling across the country. The funding for it, the presence of it. Um, I I think in another interview you said there's only one or two universities that teach the way that uh, that, that, that you do it. Um, So... I worry a little bit about ag education and workforce development in the ag space. Can you kind of add your thoughts to that and and where you think that outlook is? Uh, Yeah. Uh, You know, I I did go
0: to the University of Georgia and get a bachelor's degree in agriculture. Very, very traditional. Uh, And and this was post-industrial farming. And so what I learned was, was the, you know, modern industrial farming. Uh, I am, uh, I am my, my grandchildren, and I pay, and all, all of my you know, children graduated from college, you know, not, not necessarily agriculture, but it, varying degrees, and that was fine. I paid for it, glad to do it. Uh, I will not pay for my children, my grandchildren, to go to college unless there's a career path that they're focused on that requires that. It's not the best way to learn how to farm. Going to a university is not the best way to learn how to farm this way. Uh, We have an an intern program that I'm very proud of. We uh, take uh, seven or eight interns per quarter, four times a year, three months. If they don't learn how to farm in three months, they get a lot of great exposure and really sets them up to go to another intern program somewhere else or do something else here. We hire a lot of them. Uh, I, re- I really changed, uh, as, as I have evolved this far from a very linear operation to a very cyclical psych- operation, I really changed my opinion on how people should be trained for it. I mentioned the fact that in in the university setting, uh, the the professors are all absolute highly trained expert in a very narrow window, which is great, but it it causes them to lack the overall understanding of how the system works, the whole system.
2: So it, it sounds like there, there's still opportunities out there, but I, 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 think your point about not, you know, a university, maybe not being the best place for it is well taken. And, and, and that's, I think the truth for a lot of, uh, a lot of industries, a lot of, a lot of future careers. Um, well, let's get through some rapid fire questions if that's all right with you, and then we'll, uh, we'll end it. And, and thank you for being on this episode. Um, the first one I always like to ask my guests, if there is a book that they would recommend, it could be something a classic you read and, and always recommend, or something newer uh, that's been on your mind.
0: Yeah, I think the best book out there now, and I, I, I'm including mine in it, is uh, Dirt to Soil by Gabe Brown. It's great. Gabe Brown is a farmer in front of mine in Bismarck, North Dakota, and uh, that his, his book is a great one.
2: Um, the most unglamorous part of your job.
0: Yeah. Uh, you know we have really I've really added a lot of uh, levels to management here. Uh, uh, pe- different people have different uh, responsibilities managing different areas of the company. And what I retain is is kind of this, the disciplinarian. You know, I'm, I'm I'm still the guy that when somebody's not doing right, it falls to me to say, but pal, let me talk to you about what we're doing here. And you know, that I think that I'm good at that. And I know it needs doing, but it's not something that I think anybody enjoys doing.
2: Sure. Um, what are you most excited about right now? Oh, you know, I'm excited about uh, my
0: children taking over more and more of the management of this farm. My children—when I say my children, I mean my—I do mean my blood descendants, but I also mean these other young people that I've hired and put in management positions that are growing and doing, taking on more and more responsibility. That makes me happy and then uh, they're having children. we got a bunch of babies running around. So I think that the opportunity for that'll be subsequent generations exists. I'm, ser- I'm certainly not sure it's going to happen. I think that opportunity uh, you know, could be there.
2: A lot of babies running around is a great problem to have. Um, finally, uh, we, we also like to end these with a call to action. So if you were to encourage the audience listening, um, what is something that you would like for them to go out and do? What would that be?
0: Well, yeah, that's, that's something I feel very strongly about. And I would tell you listeners that if you want to see this sort of food production and land management uh, persist and grow, you need to find you a local farm. So that's where you need to buy your food. You're buying... A thousand or two thousand or something calories a day. I don't know a lot of that, but you buy a lot of food, and you can get it from large multinational corporations, and that's probably where you're getting it. Or you can go to a little more trouble and probably a little more expense and find you a local farmer. And I don't want to define local. Uh, yeah, as local as you can. And if white oak passion is local for you, that's fine. But if some if if you're somebody that's closer in and developing a program that you can meet and talk to, or if you don't go see them, contact them, email them or something, and, and they support a local uh, food production system that does what you want it to do with reference to the land, the animals, and the little local community.
2: Awesome. Well, I feel like uh, we could have talked probably for hours, but I'll be respectful of your time. And, and thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate you sharing your insights. Thank you for having me. I enjoy talking to you. Come see us. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you liked what you heard, leave a review and subscribe uh, on whatever platform you get your podcast. Also, make sure to share it with your friends and make sure that you are following ACC underscore national on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all the places that you get your content. Until next time, take care of yourselves and the planet. And before we jump, the Coming Clean podcast is grateful to be powered by Orsted, a wonderful company strengthening America's energy security with reliable and domestic clean energy. Through its integrated renewable energy solutions, Orsted is creating American jobs, investing in American communities, and driving American innovation, all while preserving our country's natural habitats. A clean energy future truly connects us all, and Orsted is helping lead the charge. To learn more, visit us.orsted.com.